blessing it is to have walked where Jesus has walked, and yet the blessing to gather together this morning and know that that Jesus is with us. I hope, you, I hope you get it. I hope that's not just me saying something. I hope you get that by faith, Christ is here. He's here. The power of his blood is at work among us. Transformation of heart happens because he is here. It's what his spirit does. And how quickly we can just turn our gaze, how quickly we can come and go, it's routine, it's routine, it's routine, and fail to recognize that it's relationship, it's glory, it's, it's the way maker face to face, breath to breath, heart to heart with you. I hope you grasp it. It's become my prayer for us as a church, and I know it's nothing new because I just keep saying it, and maybe I don't know. We'll just keep on saying it. But it, that tomb is empty because God wants conscious communion with you. He doesn't want your religiosity. He doesn't even, he doesn't even need your confession. How many people? Yes, Christ is, yes, I believe. You can say it all you want, but if your heart has not been changed by the personal presence of God, what do you got? You got away with words, and that's all. You don't know glory, and Satan would love to keep you there. Name the name of Jesus all you want, but never encounter the glory. He'd love to keep you there. And he'd love for your life as one who can only confess Jesus to utilize you as the example for what a Christian ought to be. And that's doubly terrible. Because now there's a world who sees that life of yours as not shining. They don't encounter the glory when you mention the name of Jesus. They only encounter you. That's a sad reality. I suppose we should get to the text. I hope you hear my words as... I'm not frustrated with you. I'm not angry. <laughs> I, am, I am so eager for you to taste the glory of Christ. As the text for the call to worship, thank you, Leslie. As the text from the call to worship, it, where else are you going to go? We go to many other fountains for satisfaction. I go to many other fountains for satisfaction. When I'm tired, I want to feel comfort. I want to feel rest. There are things that I go to, and I have to slow down. Why am I going to this right now? 
Am I going to it because it's a good gift from Christ so that I can joy, enjoy him in that rest, that comfort? Or am I just going to the comfort all apart from Christ? Because then what I'm doing is I'm hungering for things of this world that will never ultimately satisfy me. I'll actually distance myself from his glory, from his presence. You say, but I'm a Christian. Don't you have everything? No, stop it. Stop it. To think that you have all there is of Christ to have is true by way of your justification. It is not true by way of your experience. My wedding ring broke uh, last week. Um, but my wedding ring says I have all of that woman right there. I got her. She's mine. If all I got is a ring and I never have the encounter, what's the point? And that's my heart. And this is not just my heart for you guys. This, this is the stuff as I go interact with other pastors. I was with other pastors this past week. I was doing a memorial service just on Friday. It ruins my heart to know that there are people who have their T's crossed, their I's dotted, when it comes to what they perceive as a perfect theology. We got it all figured out. Well, great for you, but do you have Jesus? Has your heart been warmed by him? Have you found yourself on your knees saying, I'm so hungry, I just need more of him, I can't do life. Where else can you go? Well, I got my Wayne Grudem systematic theology, that's going to solve all the pro problems in my life. I'll say it again, theology is never to be an end in itself. What I'm about to jump into is not to be an end in itself. If you take this and say, well, I got more information, go home, go home now. Because <laughs> it's not about information. If I can't get you closer to Jesus himself, then in some sense I've failed. That's the aim of his word. He blesses his word. Why? Because he wants to encounter you, bring you into his glory, so to speak, that you might know him in greater and greater measure. It's the whole point of truth. So you would know the person who is true. So let's jump into Galatians with all of that. <laughs> I find myself, I'm just going to try to be straight with you, is I find myself more and uh, more kind of um, being challenged by the Lord in this season by being careful not to lean too much on a manuscript. Um, so even today, I don't come with all the stuff that I usually come with. I find that the Lord has been saying the time that you would typically spend giving yourself to writing things and putting your own sense of winsome words together to explain my truth. You know what? Why don't you utilize that time before me? And that's the way I've gone about things for the last so many weeks. And it's just the Lord warms your heart. And how, how simple words then become. 
They don't need to be perfectly put together, and I'm not saying that I'll never go back to manuscripting. I'm, I'm just saying right now that's where God has me. It's something that he's working on me. He's cleansing me. He's working on me, trying to get my own selfishness, my own sense of self-dependency out of the way. So I just come and I'm standing a little more weak before you, a little more vulnerable before you, and all the more in need of the Lord to come now. So Galatians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. We're going to focus on, just for a few moments, and I'm going to try to keep it brief today, uh, but we're going to be focusing more on verses 6 through 10. But I, I want to get, you, so you see the argument. Remember, Paul is, he is writing to the churches in Galatia. Galatia is that region north of the Mediterranean Sea where Paul had done his first missionary journey in several of those cities. Now he's writing back to those same churches because there's been false teachers who have gone around to those churches and have attempted in some ways to undermine the gospel by undermining Paul's ministry. It's that political smear tactic as we've mentioned over the last few weeks now. And so Paul is giving argument. He's defending his ministry and the gospel that he shared through his ministry so in Galatians chapter 2, he states again, Then after 14 years, Paul, I, went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, that is, the apostles, Peter, James, and John, set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, I set before them the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles. So I, I went to them telling them what truth I shared with other Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Paul is saying they shared in the same gospel. It wasn't about going back to the law or adding the law to Jesus. No, it was Jesus and Jesus alone that the apostles received as being that which is necessary for justification. So verse 4, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they actually might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Verse 6, and from those who seem to be influential, again, that same phrase, they seem to be influential. What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added what? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> Paul says, they didn't add anything. I went and hung out with Peter, James, and John. Yeah, they didn't add anything to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that is the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, that's the Jews, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, Peter, and John, who again seemed to be pillars of the church, Perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only, they asked us, 
to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. When we consider scripture and we consider the gospel, uh, that gospel being that Jesus alone makes us fit for relationship with God, when we consider that truth, that gospel, we also begin to realize, as was true in Paul's day, that there are many threats to that gospel. There are many threats to that truth. There are many threats to that message that Jesus alone makes us fit for a holy God. But there is one particular threat to the gospel of Jesus Christ that I would say in our day is just as serious as it was in Paul's day, but perhaps even more serious or more prevalent. And that is what we would refer to as the fear of man. Ed Welsh, in his book, uh, When People Are Big and God Is Small, he writes this. He says, fear of man, in the biblical sense, includes being afraid of someone, but it extends to holding someone in awe, being controlled or mastered by people, worshiping other people, putting your trust in people, or needing people, right? The fear of man is, is all of that. Or another says this, they say that the fear of man is an epidemic of the soul that can be characterized by peer pressure, by worry, by codependency. It is the act of placing others before God in one's life. It is the act of placing others before God in one's life. This becomes something of a theme. If you take the thread of this particular idea of the fear of man, you'd find it again and again and again throughout Scripture. Isaiah chapter 2 is one of those texts that highlights this problem of the fear of man. It states this. It states, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For what account is he? Now, I don't know about you, but in our day, we are quite taken by man. Man's achievements, man's abilities, whether that's the sports world, whether that's politics, who's gonna be the answer for all the problems in our world? Well, let's find the man who can solve these problems and these issues for us. Let's be enamored with what we see take place on the field or on the court. Or when we go on to Facebook, how many likes? Or dislikes am I getting when it comes to the TikTok and when it comes to the rest of social media? How, how much popularity is being gained and how much we look, we gaze upon, we give attention to. Attention is the baseline of worship. You can't worship something without giving attention to it. And what do we do on a regular basis? We're constantly giving our attention to these screens and on the other end of these screens, so to speak, is man. There he is. Our tendency is to want to be like the people we perceive on these screens. It is to dream about being like them, accomplishing things like them. I can't get my little son away from it. He's hooked on it. He wants to be that NBA basketball player, right? 
And so he even, he even tries to rope me into it because he's learning about Michael Jordan, right? Wanting to be like Mike, just like Dad. You wanted to be like Mike, right? Yes, I did. And look at Michael Jordan now. An old man wearing away. Multiple marriages, a family that fall, is falling apart. Oh, how we wanted those particular things, but didn't actually see the substance therein, that it's empty. It's empty, it's empty, it's empty, it's empty. You set your gaze on man, oh, and it, as scripture will say, it is a snare. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. You want to get in bondage? You want to be trapped? You want to be ensnared? Just give your attention, give your awe to, give your sense of worth to man. It's the problem of our world in Romans chapter 1 that it states that we have exchanged the truth for a lie. We worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. Which is to say we set our gaze upon the created things and think, oh, those things are going to give me the sense of significance and value and worth that I need in this life. There is life to be gained from creation and we find very quickly that we often then fall into a place of bondage because of that worship. We're constantly going back to the very thing that we thought would satisfy. It never does. Why? Because you were made for that which is infinite, not that which is finite. You set your gaze and you set your hope upon man. You think that relationships are going to satisfy your heart, that your achievements are going to make you approved before others, and you will be in bondage. It was so interesting. As I studied through some of this, I came across an article, a Christian article, and they were making the point that the fear of man is a biblical term, but it doesn't translate to, doesn't translate to psychology. In other words, psychology doesn't use that same phrase. But the author went on to show, oh, the same symptoms of what we see within Scripture when it comes to the fear of man can be found in personality disorders in the DSM. And I want to make that point for this reason. Some of us chalk up the fear of man to a personality disorder. We don't see it as worshiping the creation. We don't see it as sin. We see it as a personality disorder. If you want to get set free from the snare that is fear of man, you got to own up to the fact that it's not a personality disorder, that it's sin. That's my own story. Shy kid, shy kid, shy kid. Always lifting weights, being good at sports, doing all this. Why? Because I wanted to know that people approved of me. That's not a personality disorder. That is a sin issue. I am worshiping the approval of others. I'm living under their bondage. I'm surrendering myself to them as though they are God in my life. That's idolatry. And so it's this 
fear of man that we must bring straight to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's the beauty of the gospel that Paul is contending for in the book of Galatians. The gospel says, hey, you didn't do anything to save yourself. You did absolutely nothing. Jesus has done it all. His blood has been made effective to make you perfectly and forever acceptable before God. Jesus has won the day. Don't trust in other people. Don't trust in even their sense of approval of you. Don't try to make yourself uh, doing all these achievements so that they might approve of you, but no, lay those down, see them as the very sin that separates you from God, and come to Jesus who says, hey, child, I have done it all in full for you. Come and know the perfect acceptance, perfect acceptance in relationship to a holy God. That's what Jesus does for us. He's perfect. He takes what we refer to as a personality disorder and he brings healing to it. Paul will state in Galatians, he says, I am so sick of this fear of man stuff. I am so sick of the approval of, of man. He says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, he says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. In other words, you can't please man. You can't be a man pleaser. You can't be one given to the fear of man and yet at the same time be one who's saying, yep, I seek after Jesus. It's incompatible. And it's this particular then, issue that Paul is bringing to center stage as he considers verses 6 through 10. He's, he's weaving this logic through these particular verses, helping us to understand that the gospel must be guarded from this fear of man. So he states, verse 6, he's going to go and visit with James and Cephas and John. In verse 6, what does he say? He says, these individuals seemed influential. Isn't that a weird thing to say about the apostles? I mean, these were apostles. I mean, these are the individuals who walked with Christ. These are the individuals who were at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell and amazing things happened. But Paul refers to those as being individuals who seem to be influential. Right? And then he goes on to say, what they were makes no difference to me. Why? Because God shows no partiality. He then repeats it. Those who seemed influential, they added absolutely nothing to me. In other words, Paul is saying that he brought the gospel to these apostolic leaders, but it wasn't them who determined the gospel in the first place. They don't have the corner on the gospel. You don't have to go to them to get the gospel. It was not in the beginning of time, so to speak, God the Father, God the Son, and holy man standing there deciding how they would one day redeem humanity. Man was not in the picture when God un unfolded all of creation by the word of his mouth. And then he began this redemptive work 
through the providence, weaving everything all the way to that cross. So in the fullness of time, he would send his son. Man didn't have any part in that. He didn't have any part in Jesus actually coming, living, dying, being raised from the dead. Man has done nothing to have a corner on the gospel. Do you see? That's why Paul is saying, these, these guys, we respect them for who they are. They seem influential. People idolize them, even venerate them in some sense. We will not. They don't have a corner on the gospel. You don't have to go to them to get the gospel. They didn't determine it. They weren't providentially superintending it. They weren't the ones who actually died and were raised. No, no, no. They're men just like you and me. The only thing that they brought to the gospel is their brokenness and sin. Do you remember when Jesus called them into ministry? They're a bunch of nobodies, absolute nobodies, not even looking for Jesus. But here Jesus comes to them. And what does he do? He extends the hand of his mercy to them. They don't even recognize it as mercy. They see, oh, here's a rabbi. He's doing some pretty cool things. Why not follow him? And in that journey, their eyes slowly are open to the glory of Jesus. Men do not add anything to the gospel but their own brokenness and sin. So Paul is saying, I'm not going to these guys in hopes to find the gospel. No, they add nothing to it. They added nothing to me, as Paul says. I received the gospel. I received it on that Damascus road, right? Paul states in verse 7, he says, On the contrary, it was actually that they saw I had been trust entrusted with the gospel. Verse 8, they saw that as God worked through me, just as he did through Peter. Right? So God has entrusted the gospel to me. God is working through me. Verse 9, they perceived the grace that had been given to me. The whole point is the apostles... Oh, they didn't have a corner on the gospel, so did they didn't add anything to Paul. They were just individuals who had encountered the same mercy and the same grace. And so they looked at Paul and they could see, yep, the same gospel that was entrusted to us has been entrusted to you. What a mercy, what a grace. I see God at work in and through your life and ministry. In fact, in the book of Acts, Paul will describe his missionary journeys to the Gentiles, and he will speak of how the Holy Spirit blessed the gospel in power, and it's through that that the rest of the disciples say, you have the true gospel. Why? It was not just words spoken. It was authenticated by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. They could see the grace at God at work in Paul's ministry. And so it is in this idea of the fear of man that the gospel must be kept from the fear of man. Paul is not giving us any kind of reason to think, oh yeah, the, the apostles really had a corner on that. We've got we to gotta come under the, the apostles in order to get to the gospel. It's not about men who have the corner on the gospel. They added nothing to Paul. The apostles ultimately add nothing to us other than what had been mercifully entrusted to them, the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And when you consider, as I mentioned, that gospel, there is no room for man to stand. It is only mercy. It is only mercy that our very eyes would be open to such a gospel because man doesn't bring anything to God. He doesn't bring anything to the gospel in a positive sense. He only brings the sin and the brokenness. God brings everything else. So when it comes to our ministries, when it comes to how we serve others, when it comes to who we are as a church, when it comes to us as Christians in the workplace, we do not bend under the fear of man. We must not bend under the fear of man. We must allow the gospel as it is, has been entrusted to us to go forward, not being, shall not being perverted or distorted by man, but allowing it to be something that shines through us brightly. We are to worship the one who said that he's done all the work to make us perfectly approved. We are not to be seeking the approval of others. In John 14, I was reading this this morning, Jesus will say to his, his disciples, he'll say, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. How, how do you know if you love the Lord? Well, you keep his commandments. How do you know that you know the Lord? Well, you keep his commandments. How do you know that you have personal relationship with the Lord? Well, you keep his commandments. Then he goes on to say, The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. And then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. The idea is this, is that Jesus is saying that when you jump into relationship with me, when you have love for me and demonstrate it by the obedience of your life, there will be my presence manifesting itself through you. My Father and I will come and make home with you, and so what has been granted to you by way of the gospel will inevitably shine from you. The grace that you have been entrusted with is a grace that will shine forth. The mercy that you've been entrusted with will shine forth. It is not to be surrendered to man in any way. It is to be received as it is directly from God to keep the fear of man out of the picture so that God's grace alone might shine from your life, be manifested from your life, even as it was from Paul's. The apostles recognize this gospel had been entrusted to him, that God had been at work through him. They perceived the grace that was upon him. When the gospel is free from the fear of man, it results in something. All right, what does it result in? Well, look at verse 9. 
when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave what? They gave the right hand of fellowship. All right, so do you get the picture? Paul is coming to meet with them, and he's not venerating them. He's not worshiping them. He's not so concerned about what they ultimately think of him personally. He goes saying, this is what I received from God. It's this beautiful gospel. And they then respond saying, oh, yes, we know that. That's the same grace that we've been entrusted with. That's the same mercy that we have received. And without playing any kind of game of venerating one another, making one another significant in this interaction, keeping the gospel free of the fear of man, what happens? Well, it results in unified partnership, right? So they give the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. What is Paul saying? He's like, okay, we both have been entrusted with the gospel. Isn't it cool that we share in this? We're not lowering ourselves under one another, coming under one another's uh, authority or whatever. It, no, we're both going to reside under the authority of the gospel. And it's that gospel then that we're going to share in. Folks, do you realize that we, when we come together, what we share in is the gospel. We look different from one another. We live our lives a little different from one another. We have different sized families and whatever else. As, as we come together, our koinonia, our fellowship, our, the word is even intimacy, is with Jesus. We're gathering together, very different, different likes, dislikes, yes, but we're coming together with a common life in Jesus. That's what the apostles and then Paul were sharing. They were like, hey, we share in Jesus together. Isn't this amazing? And because that was the case, they're like, hey, Paul, you're a Roman citizen. You do better going to the Gentiles. Go get them, right? And Paul's turning and saying, okay, well, James, Cephas, John, hey, you guys are more fit for the Jewish folks. Go get them. Different modes of mission, different strategies, perhaps, but the same gospel. They had differences of approach. They had differences in terms of who they were targeting to take the gospel, but they carried the same gospel. They were unified in their partnership. When you kick the fear of man out of it, we can actually live in cohesiveness with one another. There can actually be unity. As soon as we start honoring one another over the gospel, over Jesus, is where things get really weird. As soon as we begin becoming so self-aware of one another rather than of Jesus, it's going to divide things. As soon as we start looking at our own preferences and our own sense of need and our own sense of want and all, uh, the, these are the styles and the things that we need. These are the sounds that we need. These are, this is the kind of stuff that we want as a people. As soon as we begin making it about us rather than about Jesus, it confuses partnership. You guys know it very well, I'm sure, if you've been in the church at any point. Right? We'll argue over the color of a carpet, and it'll divide things. 
It doesn't take much to divide things. As soon as we get our eyes off of Jesus, as soon as we get our eyes even on strategy, even strategy will divide God's people. If we're not in conscious communion with Jesus, I dare say we will be so easily tempted to lean on our own preferences rather than on the person of Jesus. And then we have division. I was reminded of a Peanuts cartoon that's been shared in several of our uh, pastoral meetings by another guy. And it's where Lucy demands that Linus change the TV channel. And then she threatens him with her fist if he doesn't, right? She says, what makes you think you can walk right in here and take over? Asked Linus. Lucy replies, these five fingers. Individually, they are nothing. But when I curl them together right, into a single unit, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. A divided church is a weak church. Without Jesus as the palm holding these fingers together, we will inevitably become divided. We will not be the terrible fist that we could be to shake hell in all of its purposes. It is not Jesus' vision for his church to be divided. Do you realize that a unified partnership in Christ is that which Jesus says is going to be the very thing that will provoke the world to recognize you actually follow Jesus? John chapter 13, verse 35. By the love you have for one another will be how the world knows that you are a follower of me. Our witness at baseline, how we shine, how we're known in this world for Jesus' sake, is first determined, can you love one another? <laughs> can you stand with one another? In fact, Jesus in his high priestly prayer, John 17, He'll pray to his father saying, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus is saying, may their unity be so firm, so united, that it's exactly like the unity, Lord, that I have with you. That's what he's saying. Astounding. He says, I want to be in them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So the world will know, so the world will know, so the world will know your love for one another, even in this room, is the very basis for your witness to the world. But if our, if getting back to the core of it, if our focus is not on Jesus alone, we will inevitably find other things to make central. And when we make anything else central, 
that's when we're, there will inevitably be division. We cannot be so aware, if you will, of one another. We can't stand in fear of one another, what we think or what our preferences uh, might be. We can't seek the approval of one another. We can't seek to undermine one another. Our aim should be to go after Jesus and Jesus alone. When our focus is set on him, the fear of man cannot stand. But then there's this final phrase that is thrown in there in verse 10. Paul says, when he's met with the apostles, only the apostles asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now, in this passage, uh, there had been a famine going on. Agabus had prophesied about it. And so Paul and Barnabas and others had gone around to the surrounding uh, regions and gathering up resources then it, to bring to Jerusalem. And so perhaps what is being referred here to is this idea of this famine. And, and the apostles are saying, hey, we're sending you out to the Gentiles. Yes, go do that. Uh, the grace of God be on you. May you be fruitful in your work, but don't forget us. Don't be so focused on the mission there that you forget the needy here. In other words, but more to the point, when we think about the fear of man, when I worship, when I have to be given so much to the approval of man, I got to do all the things so to make this person happy with me, right? If we're going to live in that way, if we're going to live in this way of peer pressure, this way of man worship, if we're going to regard man in whose nostrils is only breath, you can't love them. This goes right into, by the way, marriage relationships. You can't love them if you're trying to make your, your spouse fulfill your sense of significance and worth. You can't love them. You're going to always be trying to get something from them. They have to fulfill something in me. If you're always concerned about them fulfilling something in you, then you will never get around to actually being one who can freely love them. But what does the gospel say? The gospel says you have a perfect identity in Jesus. You have a fulfillment in him. You have approval before God in Jesus. And therefore, that's your mainstay. When you know the gospel, when you know Jesus, when you have sweet communion with him, there can only be an overflow of love from there. You can love people. You can give yourself away to people because, hey, I'm not losing out on Christ. I got so much in Christ. There's so much now to give away. You can only love those when you first are planted in relationship to Jesus. In fact, whatever efforts of love you may render to others, it'll only be for your sense of significance anyway, and therefore you've ruined love. I'm going to do these good things for the church. Why? Well, it'll make me feel better about myself. Well, now you just, that's not love, that's about you. That's pride, corrupting love. It's only when we stand in Jesus, ah, and it's to say, oh man, I'm tired right now, I don't feel like it, this doesn't feel great, this is going out of my way. 
It's sacrificial. It hurts to do this love for others. But man, when we've been seated with Jesus, when we know him, when we know the warmth of his relationship and know the security and fullness that he provides uh, in relationship to the Lord, that's a foundation from which love can flow and love can flow freely and sacrificially. And by the way, this will be part of the judgment when we get there, Matthew chapter 25. Jesus speaks of the end time judgment. He says, then the righteous will answer God saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or, 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 or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Love can go forward when we have found Christ to be all in all. When with Christ we crucify those desires for approval with others, acceptance with others, satisfaction with others, when we cower in fear because we're not sure if others are going to receive us or not, when we've defended ourselves so much from other people because of the wounds that we've suffered in the past. Oh, it's all that stuff. The fear of man doesn't always function in one way. There's a variety of ways. Even when we have been wounded and we've walled up our lives from, from any other wound getting to us, that is, once again, you're living your life by the reality of man, not the reality of the man, Jesus, who was wounded for you, that you might be healed. And only those who humble themselves, even with all the wounds that they carry, can only find healing as they do so, as they humble themselves before Jesus. Folks, if we never put our wounds before Jesus, if we never allow his healing grace to interrupt our lives, I, I'll say this as well. You won't be a conduit of his love. You can't be. You're always going to be going toe-to-toe -to -toe with people, always going to be running from people, never ultimately being able to sacrifice yourself for the good of others as Christ has done so for you because you're so focused on trying to make yourself secure Jesus alone makes us secure. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Amen. That's where we stand. That's where we cast our lives. We cast our lives before the Lord. So when the gospel is free from the fear of man, the gospel is free from the fear of man. It produces unified partnership. Man, we can do some wonderful things together. And it produces a love for the least of these. We can love those as we have been loved. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you and we thank you for the satisfaction of your blood. Your blood has... Power. Power to wipe the slate clean. Power to bring about 
uh, even imputed righteousness. We stand as those who just have done no wrong, but those who have done all the right things. And you, Jesus, have made us perfectly fit for God, accepted and approved. Lord, I pray, I pray that we would know that acceptance and approval deeply, that it would do battle against all our desires to seek the approval of man, to seek to seek awe in man. Lord, I pray that there would be only one man that we would take such awe and worship in, and that is you, Jesus. How it is when we set our affection upon you, our focus upon you, and we set our worship upon you, it frees our souls. It takes us out of the bondage of the fear of man and into a way in which we can lay down our lives as you laid down your life for us. Oh, we can show love as it's been shown to us. Oh, we can partner with others and do some damage against the kingdom of darkness as we ultimately look to you together. We wouldn't get so confused in our differing strategies or our differing ways, but we would keep our eyes fixed upon you. May Jesus, Jesus, may you be everything. All in all. Give us, give us no eyes that wander. Protect our eyes from looking at things and taking awe in man. In whose nostrils is but breath. Who has given that breath to them but you alone. You're the author of life. You're everything. So we don't go anywhere else. We go to you who has the words of life. Be everything to us, Jesus. May it be. In his name we pray. Amen.
because I don't want to be a battleman's spirit. It's anxiety over what others may think of us. But would you draw us close now? Draw us into the safety of communion to you. There's no one that we should fear. Your perfect love casts out or drives out Thank you. 
especially if it's with fear of man, if it's with anxiety, uh, please come receive prayer before you leave. We, we want this church to be known as a church where you receive prayer where you have need. And so please come and receive that if that's you. As we close, I want to declare the benediction from Numbers chapter 6. It says, May the Lord bless you and may he keep you. Where there is fear, he's keeping you. He's sustaining you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, let it dismiss. I love you all. Grace and peace. Amen.